So, good evening, friends. Excellent, excellent to be here with you. I generally just trust what um, pops into my mind to talk about on these um, Wednesday evenings. And I was wondering, did I do this a few years ago? I think I talked on this theme, which I might uh, explore for a little while, around the time of the last presidential election. I'm not quite sure. I feel moved to um, talk about Kali Yuga, this concept. And I, by the faces, I'm seeing that not a lot of people know what I'm talking about. If you, do you know this concept, Kali Yuga? Raise your hand if, you've, if you're familiar with it. Some people, yeah, okay. Well, it's a really excellent herbal tea that you get at import shops. No. No, it's not. It could be. Um, so Kali Yuga is a notion that I'm going to explore. <clears throat> it's a notion that I think is useful and I'm not suggesting you start believing that we are within Kali Yuga, which we'll all unpack what that is, but maybe to use the concept as, as a mirror or the concept as like a looking glass for us. So Kali Yuga is similar to what was predicted at some point in the Buddhist teachings that uh, at the point we're in now, we'd be in the degenerate age of Dharma. that the climate of spirituality and specifically Buddhist teachings would be um, poorly practiced. It would be harder and harder to find authentic practitioners and teachers. And generally the world would be antagonistic to truth. Okay. Now, even in those teachings that talk about the degenerate age, in tandem with that is the understanding that that is not merely an objective reality, right? It's not like going into Mervyn's and we all can't get out of Mervyn's. We're in Mervyn's or TJ Maxx or whatever your version is and you're trapped there. It's understood that it's a state of mind, the degenerate age, that gives rise to the objective reality of degeneracy. Now, um, in the Vedas, which is the wellspring out of which comes um, many streams of spirituality, including Buddhism, there's a concept of Kali Yuga. And Kali Yuga means the Iron Age. And it is a long period of time that we are well into wherein be, things become hardened. We become um, hardened and we become distant from the source. We become distant from the source of truth, culturally and therefore personally. So in this kind of cosmology and mythology, it's believed that there was a time when um, a robust spirituality was actually very natural to people. And that 
what we're in now is actually a time of degraded, greatly degraded intimacy with truth. The um, Iron Age thing is interesting in the Kali of Kali Yuga. Yuga means the era. And in this sense, Kali means um, dense. Dense is another word, the age of density. We become more and more focused on the material and the objective as all that is real. And therefore, begin to neglect more and more um, what consciousness is in its essence. So there's a hardening of views, there's a hardening of boundaries, there's a hardening of borders, and all of that leads to a hardening of hearts. So contemplating the climate that we practice within, I obviously think is useful, or I wouldn't bring up this concept of us being within the, uh, the Kali Yuga. Bringing some curiosity to how prevailing status quo and consensus reality notions condition our views about what we're doing. It's helpful to get a vantage point to see how we're seeing is one of the most priceless things in the universe. And it's very difficult to see how we're seeing. Right? How do you leap out of the water you swim in? To some degree, we can't. To some degree, if this is the Kali Yuga, then we are Kali Yuga practitioners and we're going to have to make the best of it. And we are making the best of it. Here we are doing meditation together through a machine. Yeah, that's part of evidence of what they predicted about Kali Yuga. But nonetheless, it's hard to say that's a bad thing. So from the Buddha's point of view, confusion has always been normalized. That's a point you've heard me um, belabor, and I think it's really important. Sometimes when we emphasize that our everyday life is practice, and our practice is a bodhisattva practice, and we try to just go with and just meet whatever's in front of us, we can forget that from the Buddha's point of view, Culture is always formed by confusion. Its basis is mistaken views. It's shot all the way through with delusion and illusion. There's almost no domain you can look to where there is real um, deep principle operating. There's no deep principle in politics. There's no deep principle in economics. There's no deep principle in education. There's no deep principle in um, healthcare, and even in spirituality, the deep principle begins trickling out. And so I want to talk about some of the ways that this shows up. And I think today is a kind of overview talk, and then I want to get more um, granular about it. 
it has always um, been the extraordinary practitioner that can remain amongst the mud as an untainted lotus. Yeah. And we're trying to um, name these things so that we can get more clear about what are the particular things that are actually an aberration that are becoming normalized. I want to paint a picture of how confusion is normalized and why that's important to our practice. These aren't a hierarchy and they just popped up in random order. I just kind of make talks with bullet points and sorry if there's not great sequencing. So I'll just start with um, the first thing that came to mind. The first thing is isolationism. Now in America, in many places, there's so much space. There's so much personal space that we become conditioned by personal space habit. And one of the things that comes with personal space habit, I found, do you remember in the pandemic when you'd, you'd walk like 12 feet away from anybody on the sidewalk? And everybody was so keeping, keeping um, their distance. In our isolationism, which has only been increased by pressing buttons and having food, entertainment, and everything just come to your door, you don't even have to leave your house, actually, at all. You could probably press a button and have a doctor appear. The separation has become enworlded as physical distance. We don't have to be inconvenienced with each other anymore. We can remain in our um, boxes, fully protected, fully isolated from any views that challenge our own, from any state of mind that we find offensive. And so we're becoming conditioned by distance, by distances. Even if we live in a crowded city, we still often occupy these boxes wherein we have this power to keep out what we want out. And it's at an unprecedented level because we don't have communal gathering spaces anymore where we're obligated to show up and be present with each other, right? In some sense, Dharma is letting go of distance. In touching Buddha nature, there isn't any distance. There is no gap between this and that. It's a space of deep intimacy. So isolationism is something we have to, uh, isolationism, is that a word? Is something to watch and to antidote. And the reason it's in my Kali Yuga talk is it's basically based on fear of the other. Right? It's based on the perception of other as inconvenience other as threat to my convenience, threat to my pleasure, etc. Convenience, I'll flow into my um, thoughts, some thoughts about convenience itself. Convenience is another product of Kali Yuga. It's related to machine living and how much of our life is based on manufactured goods and the convenience we believe those afford us, the conditioning of convenience is a really interesting thing. 
the gap between um, desire and gratification is so small. And then when it comes to spirituality, we expect the good to come our way with little sweat. That's a big problem. Because all the other goods in our life come our way with little sweat. And so the person who will sell us spirituality and say this is easy makes a lot, a lot of money and becomes very appealing. And those who say this is actually hard work become very, very um, distasteful to the mind of convenience. True spirituality will inconvenience you. No way about it. It will be inconvenient. It will bring you into situations that um, can't be uh, manicured and are not comfortable. Just like true relationship will be inconvenient. The um, constant interface with machines it's been going on for so long that we're, we don't actually know anybody who has not been conditioned by that. And maybe there's some anthropologist in this group who has traveled to some place and met people who are not um, having, the, having machines as a primary relationship. But I would guess that almost none of us know anybody like that, even our great-grandparents at this point. had as primary relationships machines. That does something to us. Think about um, the metaphors that you hear about what it is to be a person. I need to fuel up. I need to tune up. Or, um, you know, there's so many metaphors. We think of meditation teachers and they use They'll talk about your mind as a screen or the programs that are running. You've got to update, update your software. What we are in relationship with um, transforms us. We become that which we are in relationship to in proportion to the degree we relate to it. I'll present that as a hypothesis. Suppose we become to the degree that we're in relationship with it, that which we relate with. So if I'm relating with machines 80% of the time, it's going to condition me into being machine-like to some degree. If you've noticed that, um, I, this, I noticed this more when I was younger, and I definitely noticed it at, uh, when I lived in community, that you pick up the mannerisms of people around you, even like hand gestures, yeah, I remember at the monastery, people do like Hogan kind of gestures. People are always doing this kind of thing or whatever, like Hogan gesture of the moment. So some people imprint us more than others based on, on role dynamics. But even somebody, part of you says, I don't like that person. If you spend time with them, you begin to, and you pay attention, their mannerisms begin to impact you speech mannerisms, bodily mannerisms, and so forth. This happens with machines. So one of the consequences of our moment in Kali Yuga is we put information gathering and processing before relationship with the world. 
for many people, they could be in nature. Let's say it's beautiful outside. The first instinct is to go to the phone as information interface rather than be in communion in relationship with the natural world. And that's now normalized. That's a profound dysfunction. Information is not reality. Information is simulation. It's symbol. We prioritize symbol over living reality. That's what thought is. That was already a challenge for human beings. That's why there's the spiritual path. Simply because we've confused symbol for reality. But now we prefer external symbol. Somehow that's more um, titillating or exciting. There's more endorphin. Information gathering, we're gathering, seeking um, information as its own empty calorie before actual relationship. One of the things um, I notice in my kind of counseling role is many, many people completely disconnected from their bodies. And that's what computers will do. That's what constant interface with technology will do. It will make you more and more information-based you will function on the similar wavelength to a computer, that is data and the interpretation of data. Meanwhile, the knowing that's heart-based and body-based becomes um, relegated specialists. This is a dysfunctional thing. This is, a, this is something, this is a, a product of the times. This is something to be uh, aware of. So a related thing is uh, entertainment. I have a Dharma teacher friend of mine who does a lot of teaching on Zoom, and she said one of the problems she's found is this format has turned Dharma into passive entertainment. Countless times I've noticed that people will be listening to Dharma talks and also surfing the web and gathering other information because it's not entertaining enough at a particular moment, then they'll move into other forms of, uh, of stimulus. A passive, uh, a Dharma, a practice life is not passive. Easy to confuse um, receptivity with passivity. I do. I have for sure done that. Passivity and receptivity are as different as night and day, but they look really similar. Right? Sitting still and just being passive is not the same as being uh, awake with your cells from head to toe, awake with all of your faculties. Apparently, the National Health Institute or some such um, body released a statement that said, officially, 
social media is um, a threat to the well-being of teenagers. We could have we could have intuited that, not that any of us will do anything about it, because most of us have some degree of addiction to these devices too, and we don't want to be hypocrites. But to continue the thread of passivity, to be entertained by the lives of others is vicarious living. To get that empty calorie, um, an empty calorie nourishment by other people living wholeheartedly. It can sometimes be enough to not fully live our own life. It somehow is, uh, it does give an empty calorie nourishment that we're just entertained by all the doings of, you name it, from sports to spirituality, whatever domain. And others' lives become an entertainment object for us. Some we want to change the channel on because they're not that interesting. And some are more interesting. It creates another problem with intimacy. If everything is entertainment, there's a philosopher, um, Neil Postman, who wrote a book about how um, television kind of irreparably changed human beings. If our primary orientation is entertainment in life, then people become that too. Then Dharma becomes that too. That's a it's a challenge. A consequence of Becoming a machine or being in relationship with machines is a focus on productivity. There once was a a Tibetan monk who came to Great Vow, which by many standards is a very easeful place with plenty of focus on contemplation. And this person said, you all are very, very busy. Monks are not supposed to be busy. A monk is somebody with nothing to do. This is something that was said in past teachings, that that part of the an element of being a contemplative is not being caught up in busyness, is not being um, drawn into the artificial division of time and what that does to the body and what that does to the mind. We internalize the accelerated machine rigid tempo basically of the workaday, right? The punch clock is now in our nervous systems. There's a lot of um, consequences to that. And one is that Somehow we have all unconsciously created a world where free time is scarce. It's all filled up. And we have to fit our spiritual practice in. 
I tell people I won't I won't see them for sanzen unless they are sitting regularly. And these days I say you have to sit at least an hour a day. And some people look at me like I'm a crazy man. An hour? Where would I find an hour? But we could ask, why is it hard to find an hour? What happened? What happened that an hour is hard to find? Now, does a place that's very expensive to live, let's take a city like San Francisco, does the cost of living get created by people's busyness or does the cost of living create their busyness? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? People say, I have to work and work. I don't have any free time. But how did culture become like that? So um, some of us, it may be good to just opt out. I don't know what's best for anybody, and I'm not suggesting it to any individual, but opting out of this system of wage slavery is for some people, a very good idea, a very liberating idea. And that means opting out of um, classist ideas and particular notions of material success and approval that are also part of Kali Yuga. The Buddha was a dropout. But if we feel we can't do that, and that may be a relative truth, then we're up against one of the gnarly things about this, this time is that it's difficult to meet our needs and be a yogi. We feel a split between surviving and spiritual life. That that which is most vital um, gets relegated just for food and shelter. That's fucked up. That's our situation. Unless you want to change it, you might be able to. There will be sacrifice. Um, should I go on or is that good for now? <laughs> I have, I see a little bit more go on, okay. <laughs> Um, I have just my little points here. Well, here... So it goes without saying that for most, almost all of us, our everyday physical landscape is nearly completely, with the exception of maybe our homes, devoid of images, temples, or shrines, or any symbols of the sacred. And, um, you know, many Buddhists find Christian churches offensive, and vice versa. So we can't say, well, at least there are Christian churches. Those, those don't represent the numinous to most of us. This is a backwards thing as far as human culture. I don't know if you've ever been hit with that longing where you want 
the mysterious and the beautiful to be just part of your your experience of the world and all but all you have is car washes and pawn shops and fast food and um my girlfriend and I, we love Jeff Bezos. We think he's a fantastic person. And I was thinking that Whole Foods is the most spiritual place in most cities these days. Or it's one of the most spiritual places. At least I go in there and the symbols are there. They've been appropriated for products, but at least they're there. At least there's incense in Whole Foods. Or at least there's like a meditator on a bottle of kombucha. That's that is that's where spirituality has been relegated to products within the Bezos empire. This is, uh, a, as far as human cultures are concerned, an aberration. Previous cultures, the landscape itself was sacred. Different elements of the landscape, the energies and the ancestral connections were evident. Mountains, rivers, trees... And then on top of that, temples, shrines, uh, uh, testaments to reminders of the sacred nature of life. But that's basically completely absent in American culture. That's har- I think that's hard on us. No. The good news is you could go to Whole Foods and buy some things for your altar and make your home a spiritual sanctuary. I do recommend that. But what's reflected to us as meaningful is um, only material life. Only what can be sold to us is presented to us. The only thing that has permission to take up space is that which generates capital. Think about how hard it will be for future generations to create places of spiritual practice because property is much more expensive. Maybe the last point um, for now. Most of us have, um, and I could be wrong, I don't wanna generalize. I'll use the word, it seems. It seems really rare these days for people to have direct relationship with people they regard as elders, um, if not a spiritual elder. Such people are exceedingly rare. And we're not sure they're being reproduced. We're not sure there's, there's more of them coming. If they're out there, we don't know that there's more coming down the pipeline because... To survive all I've been talking about, to, for someone to come out as uh, an elder would be against the odds, given the cultural landscape. So we have a scarcity of role models and a glut of people's lives presented to us that are not virtuous. It's completely backwards. Think about who gets the most celebration So the cultural values are um, are um, grotesque. They're grotesque.
So, the good news is that any practice we do is a beautiful and even more meaningful thing than ever before in the midst of, of all of this, I think. The good news is that everything has ev always taken place within our own minds. That's the environment we dwell in is mind. And so we're not dependent on the world being some kind of spiritual playground. We're not dependent on the world presenting the sacred to us. We bring it forth from our own minds. That's the that's like the lotus in the mud. I'm just presenting a view tonight about the culture. You could find a hundred exceptions, right? And definitely, there's not one um, truth on this. But regardless of whether it is or isn't Kali Yuga. It's really up to us to bring forth what is beautiful. And is it harder to do it in this climate? Sometimes I tell people it's really hard to be a practitioner nowadays because of all the things I listed. And also, you don't really have any encouragement from the culture at large, very little. Yeah, and the more serious you get, the more odd you will be in the eyes of others. On the other hand, you can capitalize on your rebellious energy that says, wait, this is all freaking diluted, and I'm going to do something that is actually, um, I'm going to kind of keep it lit. I'm going to keep the torch lit. Keep the torch lit that... Um, is not common these days. I don't recommend reading books, but if you want to read one, this one um, was, I would call this book devastating in the fact that it is so, um, makes such a potent argument about Kali Yuga that um, it changed my view of my life. And I don't say that about many books. This book is called Yuga, An Anatomy of Our Fate. It's also one of the kind of books I've read two or three times. Probably three times I've read through this. I've had it for a long time. So it is a it's a modern text, and it um, it's part of the inspiration for what I shared what I shared tonight. And it's really studying Kali Yuga is, is studying the way our own minds have been conditioned. Another good way to see how our minds are conditioned by our current era is to read the autobiographies of past practitioners, pre-modern especially. And to see how it lands for you to hear a different way of seeing the world and orienting towards practice and what can we learn by just the contrast? Yeah.